Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And today's topic comes from a listener. And I'm so glad that she suggested this because I had never heard of it before. Yeah, it's phantom pregnancy. Ooh. Oh, yes. Also known as pseudosiesis. But I had heard about it and just didn't realize that I had heard about it. Like I had, I had heard about people imagining they were with child when in fact they were not. I just didn't realize it. There was like a whole slew of medical research behind it. Yeah, I was a lot more familiar with sort of the exact opposite of pseudosiesis of women not knowing they're pregnant mm-hmm. and then oopsie baby. <laughs> Well, where'd you come from? Just thought I really had to pee. <laughs> exactly. But pseudosiesis, meanwhile, is, like you said, thinking that you're pregnant, sometimes having the physical symptoms associated with pregnancy, such as a swollen belly. Mm-hmm. And even in the case of a Canadian woman in March 2014, so only a few months before we are recording this episode, going to deliver at the hospital what she thought was quintuplets, which turned out to be zero tuplets. Zero tuplets. No tuplets at all. She had this. So this couple had, um, you know, told everybody, friends, family, the community that they were expecting five babies. Websites were set up for them to help them afford the cribs and the toys and the diapers. Because how does just your average couple afford all that? That's crazy. Well, uh, it turns out that the boyfriend had to return as much as he could to both the people who had donated and to the store because the woman had never been pregnant. She wasn't. It's not that like she had been pregnant and lost the child. She had never been pregnant. So she shows up to the hospital to deliver via C-section. I mean, this woman had experienced morning sickness, actual lactation, Um and so after people realized what had happened, that this woman was experiencing pseudosiesis, she ended up going in for psychiatric treatment. Yeah, they had to. The doctors had to pull aside her boyfriend, you know, as they were preparing her to go into labor. You know, they did an ultrasound and realized, oh, there's nothing in there. So they had to pull him aside mm-hmm. and say, hey, this uh, there there's no baby. But the way that her pregnancy or alleged pregnancy had progressed I think it started out where she said that she was pregnant and then it developed all of a sudden into multiples, mm-hmm. first twins, and then all the way up to quintuplets. Right. So they had they had names picked out yeah. the whole nine yards. They had cribs. I can only imagine. Uh, but that's still a better scenario than what happened in North Carolina in 2008 when another woman who was also suffering from pseudosiesis went into a hospital to deliver the doctors actually make the incisions for a cesarean only to find, lo and behold, the womb is empty. Yeah. And this wasn't something sudden. It's not like she ran screaming into the hospital and they did the C-section then and there. They had been trying to induce labor for two days before they uh, went for the surgical option. I mean, she comes into the hospital. She's got the the full round stomach. She's writhing in pain. And she drenches the doctor with a clear liquid as if her water had broken. It sounds like she just threw a water bottle on him, though. Turns out she had a full bladder. 
Oh, she just okay. But she nobody. But you know, she's in such a state, and they're in such a state trying to take care of her. I mean, like. I mean, you know, talk about we talked about with the first woman preparing for the arrival of quintuplets. Like, talk about people who weren't prepared. And well, it may, it, well, I mean, it blows my mind. Like, you didn't nobody wanted to do like an ultrasound. Well, I think for that reason, the doctors involved are actually under medical review because or were under medical review. That was 2008 because something like that should not have happened. Their medical training should have taught them a little bit better that if a woman comes in and, and pees on your feet, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily mean you should give her a C-section. <laughs> well, okay. So talking about, talking about symptoms, you know, we mentioned, you know, your, your belly can swell to look like you're pregnant. You can experience pregnancy symptoms like nausea, backache, amenorrhea. So the, the cessation of your period. Um, some women even report feeling actual fetal movement, which may or may not be gas. But the thing is, in addition to all of these crazy symptoms happening, they can last weeks, months, or years. Yeah, and a small percentage of these women will feel labor pains as well. And it's reminiscent of the sort of sympathy pains that some you know male partners will report feeling mm-hmm. if you know their girlfriends or wives are pregnant. Uh, some men actually will lactate. But this is a different kind of thing. So it is not very common at all. Pseudocyesis happens in about one to six out of every 22,000 pregnancies. So not very common, but yet it still does happen. Well, it's not very common in the U.S., but we'll explain the difference there in a little bit. But, Kristen, speaking of men experiencing sympathy labor pains or sympathy lactation, it is a thing. That is a thing. And it's called Kuvad syndrome. And it's seen in men during or after the birth of a child in their family. And basically, the man's behavior resembles that of his pregnant partner. Although, of course, he knows he isn't pregnant. But it's part of this whole mind-body loop, which is how a lot of researchers describe pseudocyesis itself. Yeah. And pseudocyesis or phantom pregnancy also shouldn't be confused with delusion of pregnancy which is a somatic-type delusional disorder classified in the DSM-5 within the schizophrenia spectrum. And essentially, it's the false belief of being pregnant, but you don't have those attendant physical symptoms. And then on top of that, you also have something called deceptive or simulated pregnancy. So that would be, for instance, if that Canadian woman was simply lying outright about believing that she was pregnant with quintuplets, like knowingly deceiving her boyfriend, the community, etc., And then there's erroneous pseudocyesis, which involves those symptoms of what looks like it could be pregnancy, but is actually attributed to something else. Uh, It might be resulting from an organic disease, exposure to a substance, etc. And lest you think this is a modern development of our modern overworked brains, we, we have to give you some history. Pseudocyesis is definitely not a new thing. And this is coming from a story in the New York Times, as well as a 1941 history written in the New England Journal of Medicine. Basically, it's something that's been around forever. Way back to 300 B.C., Hippocrates described 12 women who, quote unquote, thought they were pregnant. Um, but the term itself, pseudocyesis, was coined in 1823 by medical writer John Mason Good from the Greek words pseudes, false, and kaisis, 
pregnancy, so that makes sense. But over the course of history and of doctors writing about it, it's been referred to as brain pregnancy and also wind in the bowels. Which is how I refer to my own flatulence. And one historical point that I thought was really interesting, I had never heard this before, uh, was the theory that Mary Tudor, a.k.a. Bloody Mary of England, is widely believed to have suffered from pseudocyesis because she was unable to produce a male heir. There was lots of stress. And as we'll talk about more, that a lot of that can contribute to the development of a false pregnancy. And even before John Mason Good describes it, In 1823, you also have 16th century English physician William Harvey suggesting that the brain and uterus of a woman were filled with, quote, imagination, phantasma brought on by sex or conception without results. And then in the 17th century, French obstetrician Francois Marceau describes a false great belly created by wind mixed with waters. And for this next historical point, maybe, I don't know, maybe some medical history buffs out there listening can fill us in. But there is an individual with the name Schmidt who was the first to consider a brain connection with with false pregnancy. Um, literally, guys, I searched high and low for who Schmidt was. Could not figure it out. Assume he's some type of obstetrician. Um, but just can't find his first name, and that's maddening to me. But anyway, he's like the Madonna of obstetricians. Yeah, it's just Schmidt. There's there's Cher, Beyonce, Madonna, and Schmidt. And Schmidt, that's of course. Just um, but anyway, he wrote that it is as if impregnation proceeded from the brain, a matter which can only be comprehended from the intimate polar conception, i.e. sympathy, known to exist between the cerebral and sexual systems. Now, Sigmund Freud also had his own theories about pseudosciasis as well, because his most famous patient, in fact, Anna O, believed that she was pregnant with a child of her previous psychoanalyst. And Freud, being Freud, attributed this to what he called transference or the strong attachments patients form to their psychoanalysts. Yeah, I mean, I think that's very close to actually what, like one of the reasons that pseudosciasis can emerge, which has a lot to do with psychology, a lot to do with stress that we put ourselves under or anxiety that certain women can experience during various times of their life. Well, that's the perfect segue then to talk about this mind body loop involved in pseudosciasis. How does this phantom pregnancy happen? And essentially, it's a bit of Freud. It's a bit of Schmidt. It's a bit of Hippocrates, whoever Schmidt is. Exactly. It's this interplay between those mental and emotional issues and hormones. Yeah. Um, the endocrine system is a thing of mystery and beauty. Uh, case studies have shown that many patients who experience pseudocyesis, false pregnancy, have elevated levels of estrogen and prolactin, which can cause the symptoms like abdominal swelling and milk excretion, in addition to psychological ones like wanting to bond with a baby. And something that seems weird but makes a lot of sense is that if you talk to a vet, a veterinarian, not a veteran, um, you will hear a lot of cases about dogs exhibiting this behavior to the point where if a dog is experiencing pseudocyesis, the vet might inject her with testosterone to just sort of like put an end to it. 
And I think it was the New York Times story, but one one veterinarian or researcher they were talking to was saying, you know, in dogs, you will see them try kind of nesting, quote unquote, and they'll get very protective of their squeaky toys because they 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 have this not only emotional, but hormone caused drive to be like, this is my baby and I'm protecting it. And you need to you need to stay away, human person. And then with a little bit of testosterone, they're like, oh, I'm just going to I'm going to tear the stuffing out of the squeaky toy. (laughs) See you guys. (laughs) Uh, But we'll get more into how that kind of mind body loop affects women more specifically when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to the show. Okay, so um, right before we uh, took a break, we were talking about the hormones causing dogs to experience pseudocyesis and how vets will inject a little bit of testosterone to stop that mind-body loop that's going on, making dogs think they're pregnant. So let's get back to focusing on humans, which is the general focus of this podcast. Um, and let's look to Mary Erskine, who's a biologist at Boston University. Uh, and she she researches this topic and she says that there's an initial emotional state that induces abnormal hormone secretion, which in turn has its own physical and psychological effects, hence the mind body loop descriptor. She says that anxiety may be one emotional state that helps set this feedback loop in motion because she points out stress, for instance, can interrupt the menstrual cycle. Yeah. So it makes sense that a lot of times pseudocyesis might be preceded by situations such as repeat miscarriages, impending menopause, a strong desire to get married. Um, if a woman finds out she's infertile, sometimes the way that the psychological processing can actually result in pseudocyesis. And because of this, a woman's body might produce some of those pregnancy signs that we talked about, the swollen belly, enlarged breasts, the amenorrhea, even the sensation sometimes a fetal movement, and then the brain misinterprets those signals as pregnancy. And thus we have this feedback loop that starts of the body signaling to the brain, oh, hey, uh, things are happening. I guess I'm smarter pregnant, maybe. And the brain being like, yeah, I guess you're pregnant. I, let's keep doing this. It's like the brain runs in through the door like the uh, like the Kool-Aid man and is like, oh, yeah, we're pregnant. Let's get this estrogen and prolactin pumping. You need to lactate, lady. So, yeah, it does. It sets up a, <clears throat> more seriously. It sets up a, an interesting biological and hormonal loop going on. But if you look at those hormones specifically, this is coming from a two, 2013 study in reproductive biology and endocrinology. Researchers reviewed past studies. This was a meta study and found that pseudocyesis shares a lot of endocrine system traits with both polycystic ovarian syndrome and major depressive disorder, which which is interesting. Um, but they found that the endocrine traits in pseudocyesis are way more like those that happen when you have polycystic ovarian syndrome than when you have major depressive disorder. Although we should pause to specify that having PCOS does not cause pseudocyesis. So don't don't get scared there. But Along those same lines, talking about the endocrine system, women with pseudocyesis may experience things like increased sympathetic nervous system activity. So this is responsible for fight or flight, your fight or flight response. So that ties into anxiety and stress. You might also have a dysfunction in your nervous system pathways that deliver adrenaline or dopamine. So you end up with a deficit 
in brain dopamine activity. This causes a decreased inhibition of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, otherwise known as GnRH. Gonadotropin-releasing hormone dials up your maternal behavior, just like the dog running to the corner to protect its squeaky toy that it thinks is its baby. So it's there's a lot going on in your body, and it's fascinating that your brain and your hormones are just like, they're just not communicating right. Well, and that's why it's so distinct, pseudosciasis is, so distinct from delusion of pregnancy. It's actually not just something that's all in a woman's head. Yeah. Her brain and body are working together to confirm this idea that pregnancy is happening. But you also mentioned, too, that this phantom pregnancy shares many endocrine traits with major depression. And it's not so surprising when you look at how most women suffering from it also suffer from mild to major depression, anxiety, and or emotional stress, which ties into all of those psychological effects that might be initiating all of these brain-body processes. So, for instance, there are examples in case studies on this of a woman experiencing phantom pregnancy symptoms around the anniversary of her son's death. Uh, There's another woman who thought she was pregnant around the time her very young son got his equally young girlfriend pregnant. Yeah, this was a weird story. So basically, the woman had had her son at a very young age, and then he at a very young age got his young girlfriend pregnant. And the mom was like, this is terrible. You know, I didn't want this to happen to you. Like, blah, blah, blah. I don't accept this. I don't approve of this young girl, blah, blah, blah. So then they they sort of like separated, you know, mom and, and son didn't speak. But when she found out her quote unquote daughter in law, her, her son's girlfriend was pregnant and expecting a baby, she herself started experiencing these symptoms to the point where she went, quote unquote, again, went into labor, gave a quote unquote final push and then felt these feelings of joy and elation, and she reunited with her son and was, like, A-OK with everything all of a sudden. So it filled a very deep psychological need to be close to her son and her grandchild. Yeah, there definitely seems to be this theme in medical histories of pseudosciasis of filling a a gap, if that makes sense, Mm -hmm. of, you know, the wanting of a child, or in more rural areas the societal pressures for women to have a child, kind of in the case of Bloody Mary, mm-hmm. the, the idea that she suffered from pseudosiasis because there was so much pressure on her to have a son. And so with that in mind, there have been some studies looking at why phantom pregnancy actually tends to happen more often in rural or more underdeveloped areas, because not only do you have women not being examined by a doctor as often but you also might have more entrenched ideas of women needing to be the child bearers. That is their role in society. And if you can't have a child or if you don't have a son, for instance, then you are really of no use. Yeah. Uh, a lot of researchers have suggested that things like poverty, a lack of education, um, relationship problems, all of these things might trigger play a role in triggering false pregnancy. For instance, one of the case studies we found was a woman from India who experienced pseudosiasis after having three daughters but no son. So she faced more of this cultural pressure to have boys because boys would help, uh, you know, support them when they're old, would carry on the family line, all of this stuff. Um, and when you look at the medical differences specifically between rural and undeveloped regions versus more urban and developed ones, 
In, you know, in Western countries, for instance, women are generally more likely to visit OBGYNs in the first trimester. They're more likely to have an actual pregnancy test, ultrasounds, all of this stuff, which leads to more accurate diagnosing. Whereas in those more rural and developed regions, women typically aren't examined by a doctor or midwife until they're basically like in labor needing help. And so there was a 2013 study in reproductive biology and endocrinology that was comparing rates of pseudocyesis in the U.S. with African countries. Um, And so, you know, we cited that number earlier for the U.S., which was there's about one to six out of every 22,000 births. And you can compare that when you move to South Africa to there being one case of pseudocyesis out of every 200 births. And this is not exactly comparing apples to apples, but um, when you move to the Sudan, one out of 160 women who had previously been investigated and managed for reproductive failure reported having pseudocyesis. So you see these different cultural pressures, but also sort of a lack of education for these mothers. So for an example of societal pressure, the researchers looked at the Igbo culture in Nigeria, where marriage is very sacred and pregnancy really confirms your womanhood, but also your place in your husband's family. This is also a polygamous culture, so the importance of having a child is even more crucial for you know individual wives who definitely want a bit more security. So if you look at that culture, the rates of pseudocyesis are a lot higher, possibly because, again, going back to that mind-body loop that happens, compounded by a lack of education and prenatal care. Yeah. And just, I mean, just wanting a child so badly. And that is something that is not limited to these African cultures that researchers have looked at. I mean, that is behind a lot of the uh, American and Canadian women that have also been been um, examined. Yeah, I mean, this is still happening today. So the question is, then, what, how is this treated? I mean, I have a feeling that the woman who went in to presumably have quintuplets, you know, she wasn't able to just go home and resume her life per usual as though it never happened. How How is this, how, how do you handle a situation like this? Well, you know, I looked for pseudocyesis treatment. And really, it's the advice is, okay, if you're a physician, you've got to break the news so gently. Because this woman, it's not that this woman lost a a baby. It's that she never, ever had one. And so, I mean, I can't even imagine the mental break that would happen when you get the news that, oh, no, no, you're just you're experiencing belly swelling. So they basically advise physicians, break the news very gently, offer psychological support and refer the woman to a mental health professional. Yeah. And that's about it. I mean, that's there might also not be so many robust resources out there at the ready because it is so uncommon. Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, just considering how. I mean, thinking about how our minds, brains, bodies all work together to sometimes cause this condition is incredible. Yeah. That the wanting of a child can be so strong. And even just the symptoms of a belly swelling can signal our brain to release these hormones that then 
send us even more messages that yes, a baby is on the way. I mean, can you imagine? No, because I experience belly swelling all the time, but it's usually related to like beer and tacos. Yeah. So, but no, I, I do understand on a much smaller scale. I mean, I do understand like the psychosomatic illnesses or feeling nauseated or things like that when you've convinced your brain that like, ooh, I smell a noxious odor. Things that we talked about in our um, mass hysteria episode. It's it's easier than you could ever imagine, uh, which is a funny turn of phrase in this instance, but it's easier than you can ever imagine to actually convince yourself that you are ill or that you are, you know, I guess... Pregnant. The human mind is a powerful thing, Caroline. So powerful, like a steel trap full of butterflies. Well, I'm curious now to hear whether or not there are any listeners who have known anyone who have experienced a phantom pregnancy or someone in your town, perhaps, who has experienced this. Uh, let us know what you think about it. Momstuff at discovery.com is where you can send us your letters. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or send us a message on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you right now about one thing that probably causes a lot of our bellies to swell sometimes, and that is chocolate. Okay, well, I have a letter here from Saji from Melbourne. Um, Saji says... Really enjoyed your podcast on chocoholism. I was interested to hear about the history behind women, chocolate, and advertising. I can also totally relate to Caroline. Hey! Closer to that time of the month, I crave chocolate. And of course, after listening to your podcast, I treated myself to a waffle drizzled with molten chocolate. That sounds amazing. She says, no guilt here, but I'm definitely not missing spin class tomorrow morning. Please continue your awesome work. Well, thanks a lot, Saji. Now I want to go also eat so many things drizzled with chocolate. Well, I've got a letter here from Shira talking about how she and her boyfriend have a shared hobby of what she calls chocolate snobbery. She says, we consider chocolate snobbery a shared hobby now and understanding the flavor notes of chocolate based on the tempering process, cocoa content, and origin has also parlayed into expanding our palate for wine and coffee tasting, too. We are both foodies and make a point to visit local chocolatiers when we travel together. We always make a point to try confections or truffles that utilize unique or savory combinations. Some favorites include chocolate with basil, balsamic vinegar, or curry. And we've been known to drop serious cash on quality chocolate. Most of the chocolate sold in the U.S. has only around 20% cocoa content. And checking labels, one will find that many are actually chocolate-flavored candy. U.S. chocolate is notoriously sweeter than European varieties, but the key difference in quality is the reincorporation of cocoa butter during the tempering process. Large-scale confectioners like Hershey's and Nestle don't reincorporate the butter after it's been separated for conking. Rather, it's sold to cosmetic industries, for cocoa butter products. Mm. For the smooth texture, they'll add paraffin wax. Pretty gross. And since I have more of a salty craving rather than sweet, she suggests that I try milk chocolate with sea salt or milk chocolate covered potato chips, which she says are a must have menstrual craving. Oh my god. I like can't even handle it. That sounds the, so good. The look on your face, Caroline. I'm, one of my favorite things. So there's this little, there's this little shop in Atlanta. That sells, I don't know where they're from, but it sells these cookies in a jar by the cash register that are chocolate chip, like chunky chocolate chip with sea salt on top. It's all I can do not to buy the entire jar. I'm like, I'm salivating. I have to leave. 
We better wrap up then. MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can send us your letters about chocolate, uh, phantom pregnancies, or really anything that's on your mind. We want to hear from you. And for all of our social media links, podcasts, videos, and blog posts, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 